Hey, good morning, friends. Welcome to church. My name is Matthew, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Eastside. I want to read to us this morning from Acts chapter 8, one of my uh, favorite stories in the New Testament, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into this morning's text. And then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. And so he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the spirit said to Philip, go over to the chariot and join it. And so Philip ran to it. And he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for this beautiful story, and um, for how it speaks to us today, and I I pray that you would help us to see how it does, and that you would strike our hearts with its beauty and the beauty of Jesus, Um, and that you would use it to inspire and form our community in the way of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So for the Easter season, which we're halfway through at this point, we're, we're spending it in the book of Acts. We're calling our study in the book of Acts a new story because it's about the church being birthed. And it's about this, this new movement of God on the earth. And what we see in the book of Acts is like right after the resurrection of Jesus, that the, the message of the gospel, it doesn't stay limited in any way to spiritual, invisible, immaterial things, but it immediately begins to speak to material realities in the world, to, to power structures, to uh, the view of the human body, to uh, structural realities, whatever it is. And so in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, Rather than people running around and saying, let me tell you now how your soul can go to heaven. That's actually not really what the resurrection is about at all. Instead, it changes how we think of power, how we understand wealth and so on. In fact, you could say that in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, the first thing the church does in Acts chapter 2 is they build what can only be called a socialist society in which everyone's goods belong to everyone, in which hierarchies are flattened and uh, those who once had been divided by class and culture, now slave and master are sitting at one table and sharing a common cup. 
A safety net was created for the first time in history for those who had no one else looking for them, widows and orphans and those on the margins. Women were given power in the early church alongside with and sometimes even over men. The society immediately begins to disrupt Roman culture and there are several examples of Roman historians being very angry and frustrated with this new culture emerging out of the followers of Jesus. For one thing, the church begins to sort of delegitimize the power of the state and say true power is found in a suffering crucified servant. True power is found in the kingdom of God, which is exemplified in the person of Jesus and now is tangible in the people of Jesus. Similarly, uh, true power is, is not found in the locus of the temple. God's presence does not reside behind curtains anymore, but is found in every baptized person who has the Holy Spirit. They are now the temple of God on the earth. Now, of course, this society is not perfect. It's marked by greed and racism and, and, and sexism and gossip and the like. But it is a socio-political vision that is in many ways living out the, the vision of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And it is something that to this day we really don't know how to, to make sense of or to try to replicate because it doesn't seem to fit in. It's incompatible with either state-enforced socialism, which is fueled and energized by, by force and fear rather than greed, uh, or generosity and love. It also is incompatible with hyper-individualistic capitalism, which is fueled by uh, self-interest and greed. It is a holistic vision. It speaks to economics and authority and race, ecology, community, the future, enterprise, all of it. And so we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that the early church also begins to understand that the resurrection of Jesus and the life of Jesus affects how one understands family and gender, sexuality and sex and marriage. These things, in a sense, get redefined and, and reoriented around a new telos, that great Greek word that means like the, the end point or the aim of all things. They get reoriented around this new telos. Now family is no longer merely biological and legal, but it's a spiritual reality. Now the only bloodline that matters is Jesus's bloodline and we're all relatives. Now marriage is no longer ultimate. It's actually just a shadow of a greater union between Christ and the church. Now sex is no longer essential. It's just an echo of an eternal intimacy with God and with others. And in the wake of this, the church suddenly begins to make space for, and not just like make space, but to celebrate things that had never been celebrated in society before. People who had been rejected and pushed to the outskirts of society suddenly had a seat at the table, people who were single and celibate, people who were widows, who chose to remain widows after the death of a spouse. These people suddenly had a family and a heritage, people who were taking care of them, people who received them as, um, as kin. The church created a society where someone didn't have to marry in order to have family, in order to even be a parent, in a sense, to children. And that's because in the family of God, the generative power that makes someone a child is the spirit. It's why John says in the opening of his gospel, but those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, they have the right to become children of God. And these children, John says, are born uh, not of blood. They're not in a bloodline, not of desire. It's not, it's not sexual appetite that's creating this offspring, nor of the will of man. This isn't decisions that people are making to have a child. But these children are born of God. 
And into this context today, we drop in our story today. And we're with this guy named Philip, who you probably haven't met unless you've been reading the book of Acts, but we meet him for the first time in Acts 6. He's one of the first deacons in the church, one of the very first officers, as it's called, in the church. And when one of the fellow deacons, a man named Stephen, is martyred, he's stoned uh, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7, when that happens, Christians all over Jerusalem, including Philip, begin to leave and go outward and take the message of Jesus to the outskirts. First, he goes to Samaria. He sets up a church there. It's going very well. And then our text begins. He's called out of Samaria. God says, go out into the wilderness. And while he's out there on a road that is heading south, he sees a caravan coming towards him. And in this caravan is an Ethiopian, an African, a prominent one at that, a high court finance officer for the Ethiopian queen. He is the secretary of the treasury for a nation which at this time uh, had one of the largest landmasses in the world that it had dominion over. This massive landmass in Africa, far larger than modern day Ethiopia. And this man was, we're told, a eunuch. And just for clarity's sake, a eunuch is a person who's had their reproductive organs removed. And the reason that they would do this to people, it was often done to young boys who were in court, who were being uh, sort of groomed for higher office in the court. And it was believed that if you did this, you were making that person trustworthy because a eunuch would have no ulterior motives. In other words, the rulers felt safe with eunuchs around their wives and their concubines because they could, they could trust that they weren't going to try uh, anything. It was common belief in this day that there was just simply no one as trustworthy as as a eunuch. But of course, you know what it means to be a eunuch, right? It means that someone has chosen for you the loneliness of your life. It means that the thing that is true about your waking, sleeping, and everything in between reality is that you are cut off and isolated, one who feels constantly on the outside of a thing that everyone else seems to be on the inside of. Your entire life, you are unwelcome, unreceived. Sure, it's nice to be trusted, but the reason that you trust a eunuch is not because of their character, but it's because you don't view them as a threat. And so you're seen as weak and powerless, an undecided destiny of loneliness, of looked down upon. And more than that, you have no ability to make children, which means in this day and age, at that time, in this economy, you were not able to do the single most significant thing in building your personal worth and wealth. So we're told that this eunuch goes to Jerusalem and he goes to Jerusalem to worship, we read. Now, we don't know why uh, he, he's worshiping the God of Israel or how he came to know of it. But I think it's kind of fun to speculate that when um, the queen of Sheba, who was from the region of Ethiopia, came to visit Solomon a thousand years before to see the, the, the temple of Solomon and to see the great wealth and the, the prestige of Solomon's kingdom, that she went back with some scrolls. And so the God of Israel, the God Yahweh, had somehow worked its way into Ethiopian culture. So it wasn't totally crazy that a person thousands of miles away uh, might have heard of the God of Israel and had decided they wanted to make a journey to that temple to visit that God. But what is almost certain is that as soon as this unit got to Jerusalem, they would have been deeply disappointed and even devastated because they would have found out that they were simply not welcome in the temple because they were a eunuch. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 says, um, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. 
And Deuteronomy is a book from early part of the Old Testament that the Jews held in high regard as the writings of Moses, as the Torah, the law. And so the eunuch would have gone to the temple and they just simply would have said, you? Why would you think that you could come in here? No one like you is allowed in this place. This is a holy place. And you are, they would have said, a dry tree. You know what a dry tree is, right? A dry tree is, is a fruitless tree, a tree that can't replicate, a tree that will live its life and then die, that has no seed or leaf or berry or fruit that comes on its limbs. A dry tree is a tree that will live its life and then die alone. And he's on his way home and he's brokenhearted. And we know that he's diligently reading the prophet Isaiah and he's in the 50s. He's reading Isaiah 53, actually. This is what he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And then this is the phrase, who can describe his generation? For his life has been taken from the earth. That word generation is often translated in the Bible and it uh, it can be understood in the Hebrew to also be descendants. Who can describe his descendants? For he has been taken from the earth. And so this eunuch who has just been told he's not welcome in the temple of Israel's God is on his way home. And he's suddenly reading Isaiah 53 and he comes across this, this picture of a person who has no descendants. You can imagine the train of thought. Wait a minute, like what? Who is this? virtual eunuch, this one who has no children. Who is this man? And he didn't know, is it the author? Is it someone else? Philip approaches the caravan. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I understand if someone doesn't explain it to me? Now quickly, as an aside, this is parenthetical, but I think it's it's worth saying. It certainly is in the text. Um, How can I understand unless someone explains it to me is language that I wish more of us had in the Protestant church. One of the things that I love about being Anglican is that we do have a really high regard for tradition as defining and articulating how we understand a thing. And yet we understand that this can be taken too far as well. Of course it can. Some traditions do need to be amended. But nearly every schism, every division, every argument, every fight, every separation in the church has always originated from somebody not asking the question, how can I understand this if someone doesn't explain it to me? Um, I think even today, certainly those of us who do find ourselves in an Anglican church, who do try to look to the past in some way to define some things, there are certain areas of our life or of the Bible that we say, I don't need you to explain this to me. I'm actually going to go on what I see in this as being determinative and authoritative. We assume most of us today that we always have the truest perspective because we're the most recent and therefore the most relevant in in understanding what these things are saying. When we approach the Bible and assume that we always have the most accurate description or or perception of what it's saying, we're doing a few things. One, we're not listening to our elders or respecting the wisdom of the past. And this can force us into all sorts of dead ends or even worse, it can point us in the wrong direction, which it often does. And it forces each subsequent generation to have to relearn the lessons of the past rather than build on the accumulated knowledge of history. How can I understand this without someone explaining it to me is a a statement of humility that says, there are many people who've lived before me who I bet you know maybe more than, than me. So Philip opens his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he tells him the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Now, what does Philip say to the eunuch? What does he say to this brokenhearted, lonely, frustrated man who's hanging on this word? Who can describe his generation? Who can describe his descendants? 
What is the gospel that Jesus can give to this man? He tells him, most certainly, about this person from Isaiah 53, this person who is called in the Bible the suffering servant, that this is a real person, that he's not a person in ancient history either, but actually in this context, he's very recent in history. He is a person, a a servant, who bore the afflictions of his people, and by his stripes, Isaiah writes, we are healed. A man acquainted with sorrow, the prophet says, so that we may be acquainted with joy. A man who bore our sins to death so that we could receive forgiveness and life and live in the land of the living. The holisticness of Jesus' salvation, Philip would have been able to say, speaks to the whole thing. It speaks to the sin. It speaks to the infirmity. It speaks to our disease. It speaks to the brokenness of our systems, our structures, and it also speaks to the brokenness within ourselves. It speaks to our longings and desires. And this person, this suffering, miserable, lonely, isolated, defeated person, answers, addresses every part of it. Nothing is lost in Jesus's death and resurrection. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing is seen as inferior or uh, unimportant. I can imagine that Philip couldn't wait to further open up the scroll and get to Isaiah 56 verse 3 where we read this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, let not him say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you imagine? That verse must have gone through that Ethiopian like a sword. A name greater than sons and daughters. A heritage more long-lasting than biological family. How is it possible that the gospel speaks to that? The loneliness of Jesus that we see in his life, loneliness of all people, is met in Jesus and redefined in Jesus' life experience. Jesus' loneliness is is not a minimization of it, but it's actually divine engagement in loneliness, in isolation. It is full participation in it. Jesus' experience of loneliness forever dignifies it and at the same time swallows it up forever into himself. What What must it have been to know to this eunuch that Jesus became a virtual eunuch so that that man could have descendants, so that you could have children, even if you never marry. The founder of our faith, the patriarch, if you will, is not a man with children. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's not Muhammad. It is a celibate single man with no children to speak of, except spiritual ones. And just how unessential must sex and marriage be if the one who was the founder of our faith, who fully experienced whole humanity so that he could make all humanity whole, didn't need to experience either of those. Now in the light of Christ's life, we who have placed our hope in family are invited to see these things in fresh, with fresh eyes of a new story. And for most of us, to recognize the idolatry in the church around the nuclear family. And there's a lot of idolatry in the church around family. Now in the light of Christ's life, 
we need to embrace the reality that singleness and celibacy are not inferior human lives, but equally human, and according to the New Testament writers, even to be desired. The New, church, the New Testament church was revolutionary because it reimagined the family as a community where now everyone has a place at the table and put sex in a new perspective. Sex is a good gift. It's just not a good God. And a life without sex is not an inferior life, but a life without Jesus is. Jesus in Matthew 19 is speaking about singleness and marriage, and he gives this word that is now rolled down through the corridors of time and comes to us today and still speaks to the reality of single people and celibate people and people who are, are sexual minorities in the church. It still speaks to us today, and this is what he says. He goes, there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept it. Sexual minorities in the church in particular, lesbian, gay, bi, trans folks, queer folks, asexual folks, people seeking to follow Jesus often feel completely lost and alone in the world of evangelical churches of cisgendered nuclear family Folks, here at Emmanuel, our desire is to be a place where every person, regardless of how they identify, whether or not they have children or none, that they would find this place to be a place where they can find family, where there is a chair at a table with their name on it, where there is a, a house to be in on a holiday and people to go on vacation with. That family is not an exclusive privilege for few, but it's the right of everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. That everyone is welcome and received in this place as a member, a full-fledged participating member of a family. And we have a really long way to go as Emmanuel in seeing this come to life. But I need to tell you that the only way towards this is, is if we're willing to move towards one another. And we haven't done that for a year now. And most of us are still skittish about it. And, and COVID is still real and it's still out there and people are still getting infected with it. But at least here in Decatur, most of us are already vaccinated. Most of you are vaccinated. And in a few months, most of our kids will be vaccinated as well. And our greatest enemy now in us moving towards a vision of community that comes from the life experience of Jesus and is in conformity with what Jesus calls the church to, our greatest enemy in moving towards that is not medical anymore, friends. It's psychological. We need to understand that we've been trained in fear for a year and that fear was rational because it came from a real threat. But you and I need to more and more realize in order for us to be people of Jesus in the coming years, we need to open our doors again. We need to enlarge our tables again. We need to find space so that everyone has a place again. We have all in the church been formed into a single family. And the thing that unites us in that family is not Anglicanism, but baptism. And that's because what baptism is a picture of is birth. Baptism is the waters through which a person is born. Every person who has been baptized has been born through water. 
no wonder our story ends with this man who will never have children and never have a spouse. It ends with him emerging from the water, being born again into the family that now I'm a part of and you're a part of. And this is our birthright and our vision. And Jesus, we cannot do this apart from your spirit. We are afraid. And more than that, we are, we're busy and we're selfish. And we have a lot of things keeping us isolated and siloed off. And we just pray in Jesus' name that you would begin to move in our hearts, that we would open doors, that we would open arms, that we would receive with love and affection the church. We ask God that you would make us into a sign and a wonder on the earth. That people could believe that there was a place for them, even if they'd never found a place before. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm sure you're not watching this before coming to church, <laughs> but maybe you are. We're going to be outside we're going to take communion. We're going to gather around that big family table together, and we're going to baptize kids. How perfect is that? So we hope you'll join us in a few minutes out in the parking lot. Grace and peace to you, family members. You are loved.